Hello, welcome to the MSU Com Statewide Campus System Med Ed E Forum. We are joined today by Dr. Jed Megan, who is Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Psychiatry for, at Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine and Human Medicine. Uh, today, he is going to be talking to us about um, gambling addictions and compulsions um, and other things. <laughs> So, uh, Dr. Megan, thank you so much for being uh, here with us today. Um, I know I had uh, quite a few programs reach out for this topic, and being the time of year and resident orientation, I know that the recording uh, will be used heavily uh, going forward. Save for posterity. Okay. All right. Let me get this up. Um, so you should be able to see a slide that says compulsions, dependency, and a few other things, hopefully. So um, it's really hard to do a whole hour on gambling. So I'm going to do a whole hour on gambling and other kinds of um, dependency kinds of issues uh, and kind of give you an overview. So uh, first of all, I have no disclosures. I'm not working for any drug companies or anything of that sort. Now, I'm primarily a child and adolescent psychiatrist. And sometimes in child and adolescent psychiatry, we kind of kind of think about, about this. So scarecrow, riddle, and, and so on and so on. Um, an important point, when you think about any kind of addictions or dependencies, uh, you know, treatment isn't necessarily so good. Evidence-based treatment. So... If you look at private programs that treat all kinds of addictions, uh, medication adoption, good medications that we use all the time for the addictions is really is under 50%, which is really kind of discouraging. And in fact, only 23% of programs reported using any of the uh, FDA approved pharmacotherapies for treating addiction. So, you know, a lot of programs don't use those and a lot of programs don't use any other psychiatric medications for anything unfortunately, and, and so they miss a lot of treatment opportunities. Um, really evidence-based treatment of addictions is both a variety of therapies, which we'll talk about, and for some addictions, medications that are, that are very useful, which we often call relapse prevention medications. So what I wanna do is start and talk about dependency, definitions, what is dependency? You notice I didn't use the word addictions, and you can, but addictions is often more loaded in terms of in terms of how people think about it talk something about the neurobiology of these things distinguish dependency from other things as related to gambling particularly talk about well how do you develop dependency on substances anyway and implications for treatment so an important point dsm-5 and dsm-5 is now obsolete because we're now up to dsm-5 tr but it's it's really the same um, definition really eliminated the distinction between substance use and substance dependence. And the reason for that was, was a perfectly good set of reasons. One, it's all on a continuum. Where does use stop and where does dependence begin? Um, it used to be that when, if you had legal issues, it was by definition dependence. Well, you would have legal issues. You can be picked up for an MIP and not have any issues with dependency. So legal issues can be present whether you're not dependent. And, and again, dependence is often misunderstood. It's a loaded term. Addiction is a loaded term, often equated with illegality. Now, the, the other major thing you got to understand here is all 
substances of addiction, all substances that cause dependency, will have these three phenomena. One is tolerance. So you're going to need more of the substance to get the same feeling. So if you think about opiate use, people start out using opiates and they feel really good. They get hedonic feelings, pleasurable feelings. Over time, they have to use more and more of the substance to get the same feeling. And eventually, if you talk to people who use opiates, uh, they're buying them on the street, they're using um, you know, heroin, whatever. Often what they're doing is they're just chasing the withdrawal. They say, I don't get, you know, I don't feel good anymore, but I don't want to withdraw. So they're they're really just trying to prevent themselves from withdrawing. So one, one is tolerance, and that applies probably even to these more ill-defined things like gambling. The second is cravings. When you don't have the substance, at some point, cravings will kick in. Now, that can be context dependent. And one of the things that self-help programs like AA tell you is you got to get rid of your friends who use. And you got to not go to places where you use. Because when you go to places where you use, neurobiologically, and there are good neurobiological reasons for this, it can kick off cravings. So boy, it would feel really good to have a drink. Boy, I'm really stressed. I want to go to the Motor City Casino, whatever it is. When I have some nice, some of that nice Laphroaig scotch, that sort of thing. So tolerance and craving and then withdrawal. So you stop the substance and you have withdrawal. You have either a physiological withdrawal or more a psychological withdrawal. So if you use opiates, you're going to have a physiological withdrawal that consists of things like um, tremors and chills and fevers and GI disturbance and so on and so on. If you stop, if you use a lot of cocaine and you stop using cocaine, well, you're not going to get a physiological, at least not that kind of physiological withdrawal. But what you've done is you've really flogged your neurotransmitters and people who use a lot of coke and then stop get really depressed. They get a just a really profound anhedonic depression that can last for even up to a year and a half. Gambling, people who stop gambling can be, you know, more irritable and upset. People who use marijuana, you stop using marijuana and you can have the same sort of thing. You can be irritable and have some cravings and kind of angry and that sort of thing. So tolerance, craving and withdrawal are characteristic of any substance that causes dependency. And you got to see that or it's not that. Why do people gamble? Turning to gambling, why do people gamble in excess? Well, let's start with why people gamble. And this applies to any substance of dependence, every single one. And the reason is you get rewarded for using whatever it is, for gambling. You get hedonic feelings, that is you get good feelings. And here's the obligatory picture of the brain that we all use because we want people to know that psychiatrists are physicians too and we you know, know about stuff like neuroanatomy. So, the issue really, the phenomenon really is increases in dopamine levels in the nucleus accumbens, which sits right down here. There's your nucleus accumbens. You notice it's right next to the frontal lobes, which is interesting. And it has innervation to the frontal lobes and from the frontal lobes. So when you have any kind of hedonic feeling, you have a nice, um, you know, you have a nice glass of that Laphroaig, single malt scotch that's made on the island of Islay you get increases in your dopamine levels in the nucleus accumbens and you feel good. You have a nice meal, it increases in dopamine and you feel good and so on and so on. Anything that 
causes dependency will cause increases in those nucleus accumbens dopamine levels. The faster it happens, probably the greater the addictive ability of anything. So gambling, people gamble and they kind of get rewards once in a while. Now what they get is intermittent rewards because you know the casinos are not dumb. They know if they reward you periodically and unpredictably, that really um, neurobiologically gets you to stay there. And of course the house always wins in the end. So, so they know what they're doing. So there are probably both genetic and environmental influences on this dopamine set point. Um, if you come from, if your mother used a lot of substances during pregnancy, one of the things that may be happening is your dopamine set point is a lot lower. So it's, you know, down there somewhere. It's low and maybe it doesn't go up a lot. So you may be somebody who's not capable of having a lot of really kind of hedonic feelings. One of the things you might do then is turn to drugs, which really juice that and really push those dopamine levels up. So people with low dopamine set points might be um, more prone to use drugs. Another way that happens is depression. When people are depressed and they're anhedonic, they don't feel pleasure. Their dopamine set point has probably dropped due to their depression. So dopamine set points are probably important in terms of genesis of things like substance use. Lower dopamine responsiveness, so you have lower dopamine levels. And again, you can really kick them up with substances of abuse, especially ones that work quickly. So if you shoot heroin instead of snort it, that might be better. Um, if you shoot heroin instead of, you know, take pills, that might be better too. So there's the issue, decreased responsivity and larger elevations that set point might be important in substance use, probably is. And it looks like these are animal models, but you know, if you can occupy those dopamine transporters, about 60 to 80%, that correlates with continued, that's when you can get animals to continue to administer the substance. Important point, what modulates dopamine function? Well, a whole bunch of things. GABA, gamma amino butyric acid, opiates do, obviously, cannabinoids, cocaine, nicotine, and social status, which we'll talk a little bit about, genetic effects, which we talked a little bit about. So all these things do, and any substance of abuse will manipulate some neurotransmitter, either directly or indirectly, to cause increases in dopamine set point. And that dopamine set point, it's really bursts of firing on the nucleus accumbens. Okay, so that's the mechanism. Now, why do people gamble to excess? Well, a couple of reasons. One is dependency, they've got a real addiction. Another is impulsivity. Another is compulsivity, we'll talk about that. And then a very interesting one that comes from The Economist, the fallacy of sunk costs. Which is not exactly a neurobiological phenomenon, but <clears throat> we'll talk about that. So, so let's contrast what we think of as a traditional substance of abuse and the um, criteria for that with alcohol or with, with, um, with gambling. So let's start with alcohol use disorder. With alcohol, you get a prominent pattern, this comes from DSM, of alcohol use leading to significant impairment or distress. Any psychiatric disorder, you gotta have significant impairment or distress. This is over a 12 month period. And then there's a long list of stuff. So the alcohol is taken in larger amounts over the longer period than you really intended. You can't cut down or control use. 
you spend a lot of time trying to get alcohol and, you know, hanging out and using it and recovering, you know, from the hangover. You have cravings, there's cravings. Um, recurrent use results in failure to fulfill major role obligations. So now you got dysfunction. And you continue to use it despite the fact that maybe you've been arrested a couple of times, you've lost your license, you know, your family is mad at you, you've lost your job, and so on and so on. And important social, occupational, or recreational activities are given up, right? So you've got a lot of dysfunction with this. And you may use it like when you're driving in situations just physically hazardous. And you continue to use, even though you know this is a real problem. And you have tolerance. So you have to drink more to get the same desired effect. Or if you drink the amount you usually drink, you don't get the same effect anymore. So you got tolerance and you got cravings and so on. You got all the, all the symptoms. Um, and you got withdrawal. You've got a withdrawal syndrome. So that's alcohol use. And that's, we think, you know, that's, wow, that's real dependency. And we know that. Now gambling. So here are the criteria for gambling. Persistent recurring problematic gambling behavior, leading to significant impairment or distress. So there's impairment or distress again. You got to have that. And you got to have four or more of the following in a 12-month period. So you need to gamble with increased amounts of money. So there's the increasing amount again. There's the tolerance in order to achieve the desired excitement. Restless or irritable when attempting to cut down or stop. So really, that's withdrawal. And you've made unsuccessful efforts to stop it or really cut back. So you can't control it very well. You're preoccupied with gambling. You have a lot of thoughts about it. Um, planning to go gambling again and so on and so on and so on. So cravings. And when you feel distressed, which, will, which is an interesting thing that we'll talk about, you gamble more. And after you lose money, you go back and do it again. And you may lie, right? To conceal the extent of involvement. How much did you lose? Oh, not much. You know, how much did you really lose? Oh, 10 grand that kind of thing. And here's more dysfunction. You jeopardize a lost relationship, job, educational or career opportunity because of it. You're starting to ask other people for money. And important point, not better explained by a manic episode. Why do they have that in there? Because people with mania go out and try to find fun things to do and they can't help themselves. So they may go, you know, gambling is a great way to have fun. So they may go out and gamble, but really what's driving that is the manic episode. Okay, so we'll talk a little bit about some of these things. We talked a little bit about the genetics. We're gonna talk about development a little bit. Social effects, we'll talk about related, particularly to gambling, and we'll talk about implications for treatment. So, so here's what happens with the use of anything, any substance of abuse, including gambling. So you start out with voluntary use in search of a hedonic experience. Wow, that, um, heroin was really great. I felt great. Boy, I went gambling and a lot of fun. I think I'll go back. Loss of control over the behavior. Well, now, you know, you're doing it when you don't really want to. You can't really help yourself. You're going back to the casino and you're losing a little more money, but, you know, I still feel like I should go back. And then it becomes habitual and compulsive and you just can't stop, even though all those bad things are happening. 
that's the transition. That would that's what happens over time with any substance. Pause for a minute to pay homage to Sigmund Freud, you know, the father of psychiatry. Um, Freud used cocaine and probably used opiates uh, for fun. And in fact, in, I don't know, after, after World War II, um, he developed sometime, or 1948, something like that, he developed an oral cancer of some kind and his, his physician probably euthanized him without telling anybody, of course. Now, tolerance, cravings, withdrawal, why do those happen? There are neurobiological changes that actually happen in the brain. So normal response to drugs, here's a nice neuron that's got lots of arborizations and so on and so on. Repeated drug exposure, actually those neurons continue to arborize more and they get more elaborate arborizations and they're really increased connections between areas like the nucleus accumbens and the frontal lobes. And that increase in connectivity probably helps account for things like, boy, I really remember how great that was. So increased saliency of memories, increased saliency of feelings of hedonia and so on and so on. So, and they call it, you know, it's called use dependent plasticity. So the brain is plastic, it continues to change and substances of abuse really change it in ways that are advantageous to those substances, probably including gambling. Another picture of the brain, just to, just to show you that different substances really hit different areas of the brain. Alcohol in particular is interesting because look, it just, suck, just, just soaks the frontal lobes, which is why people who are drunk, who use a lot of alcohol are stupid. Um, William Halstead, William Halstead, Johns Hopkins University, one of the founders, eminent surgeon, one of the first people to popularize the use of rubber gloves. Halstead was a cocaine addict. He started using Coke because guess what? It gave him more energy and made him feel good. And so, you know, every once in a while, um, William Howard Welch, who was the Dean at Hopkins would send Halstead off for the cure. Halstead would come back feeling better and then he would start using coking. And then there's a, there's a vignette about Halstead. Somebody breaks a hip, they bring him in. And of course, general surgeons did all that stuff back then. And Halstead scrubs and gloves and looks at the patient who must've been depressed and says, I cannot operate and leaves. Well, that would get you disciplined days like these. When do these things start? Well, two to 7% of youth develop a gambling disorder compared with 1% of adults. And many gambling disorders begin in adolescence, comes from Yale. College students also are at risk, they gamble at higher rates. How come? Why does that happen? Well, guess what? Any substance of abuse, with the exception maybe of opiates that you get from your doctor for your back pain or something like that when you're 45 or 50, any substance of abuse really peaks in adolescence. Cocaine, marijuana, alcohol, pretty much, you know, you could, you could layer them all up here. They all start in adolescence, particularly risk, a particular risk time for lots of things. And here's a, here's a thing on the neurobiology of the adolescent brain and behavior, you know, from the American Journal of the Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Adolescents make suboptimal choices in sexual and drug-related behaviors. And that's what they peak. That's, you know, academics speak for they do dumb things. Now, why is this? Well, one reason is the brain is really a distributed processing machine, a distributed processing mechanism. And, you know, here's normal, here's your brain on drugs. 
In this case, it's alcohol. And you can see that you get decreased activity, um, but it's real patchy, you get decreased activity in more than one area. So substance of abuse, yes, it's nucleus accumbens, but they hit different other areas depending on the substance. Alcohol really soaks the frontal lobe, so people get numb using alcohol and so on. Hunter S. Thompson, the late journalist, who was also an MD, by the way, medically trained. I hate to advocate drugs, alcohol, violence, or insanity to anybody, but they've always worked for me, and they probably did for him. So adolescence. One of the problems in adolescence is brain development goes from posterior to anterior. So posterior structures and interior structures um, mature before the frontal lobe does. What does the frontal lobe do? Well, one of the big functions of the frontal lobe is inhibition. Thou shalt not. You know, I better not do this. I better not do that. That wouldn't be good. Problem is the frontal lobe is one, less mature. And two, there are less well-developed connections between the frontal lobe and interior brain structures where a lot of impulses come from. And so that's the problem in adolescence. They have less ability to inhibit impulses and greater sensitivity to rewards because those rewards come from those interior structures, principally the nucleus accumbens. So here's an interesting slide, comes from the same article. What this shows here is here's sensation seeking, here's impulsivity in terms of behavior, and here is brain activity. So sensation seeking, kids relatively sensation seeking, but it really goes up in adolescence. You feel stuff strongly and you want more stuff. And then in adulthood, that sensation seeking drops some. Impulsivity, well, kids are more impulsive and that's clearly true. Adolescents still impulsive, but less so. And us adults, yeah, well, you know, not so impulsive. If you look at brain activity, fMRI, um, Here's nucleus accumbens activity. Look how it really spikes in adolescence. So that's why sensation seeking spikes too, because you get great feelings. You know, you feel more of everything and then adults. And then prefrontal cortex, fMRI activity. Um, this is what happens with the prefrontal cortex. So in adolescence, what you get is high sensation seeking high nucleus accumbens activity, but really less prefrontal cortex activity. So the balance is all wrong. Whereas in adulthood, the balance is a whole lot better. In kidhood, you know, it might not be so great, but kids aren't as, aren't as capable of doing things as adolescents. So that's why in adolescence, it's a whole lot easier to get drugs and use them and you really feel. And so that's why adolescence is really the peak risk time for a lot of these things. Winston Churchill, this is a great picture of Churchill was taken by a guy named Karsh, who was a famous photographer. Karsh was a young guy. At this point, he's, he's photographing the prime minister of Great Britain who won the war and so on and so on. And he's not satisfied with the picture he gets. So this young 20-some-year-old guy reaches over, grabs Churchill's cigar, and he gets this picture, which is characterized as a snarling Winston Churchill. That takes guts. All right. So we know neurobiologically why these things happen now. Is this thing um, <clears throat> really an addiction or is it kind of more compulsive um, or, is it, or is it impulsive? Well, if you're a runner, I'm a runner. You know, I was on the treadmill this morning. If you're a runner and you run fairly frequently, what happens when you don't run for a while? 
you get an you get an injury maybe, which for some reason is happening more often to me. I don't know why. That kind of thing. You know, you get you sort of. Oh, I wish I could run. I'd like to run. Now that may not be an addiction, um, but you know, you like it a lot. It's kind of kind of a compulsion maybe, and you feel better. So it's something in between those. But you don't really get a lot of um, you don't really get a lot of withdrawal from it probably, and you don't have any um, real physical symptoms from it. Do you crave it? Yes, some. But you can get by without running. So it's not like it's probably for the vast majority of people, not an addiction. Now, how about other things? How about gambling? Well, for some people, maybe gambling is a real addiction. How about sex? Well, you know, I've got a sexual addiction and so on. You know, people run around talking about all kinds of addictions. The fact is probably the vast majority of people don't have those kinds of things as addictive behaviors. They're more compulsive, they're impulsive, they have them for some other reasons, but there is a small minority of people who have addiction-like um, phenomenon to things like gambling, you know, and things like sex, and maybe things like running, and so on and so on. Some people would say, well, you know, you get these people who, who hit the bottle real hard, they're alcoholics, and then they stop, and then they become runners. And some people would say, well, they replaced, you know, one addiction with another. Maybe when it comes to these kinds of things, it's it's much more difficult to tell. But let me let me talk about how you might try to parcel those out a little bit. So, if you're a gambler and you've got an addiction to gambling, you know you get um, at least initially great pleasure from gambling, and you probably talk about it in glowing terms. Say, wow, that's great, and so on and so on. And when you can't gamble, you probably get more irritable and upset, um, you know, and you think about it a lot. So you get cravings and you really can't stop yourself. That's more in line with an addiction. I once saw somebody who shoplifted a lot. And this guy talked about shoplifting like you talk about addiction. He just loved shoplifting. And I considered in his case that that might be a real addictive phenomenon, but it's often not very clear. So what if you don't have an addiction to gambling? What if you have obsessional behavior? You know, essentially you have obsessive compulsive disorder and one of your obsessions is gambling. Well, it's not gonna be just gambling. If you have real OCD, it's gonna be other things. So you talk to these people and yes, you know, I'm rule bound and you know, I wash my hands a lot because I feel they're contaminated a lot and or, um, you know, I count things a lot and so on and so on. You will see other obsessional behaviors or perhaps other compulsions. And it may be that they've incorporated gambling into that obsessional behavior. So it's more broad based than just the gambling. How about impulsivity? Well, it's the same thing. Impulsivity, people are impulsive in more than one sphere of their life. So yeah, I'm gonna to go to the casino today. We're just gonna go and spend a lot of money. I don't intend to spend a lot of money, but boy, you know, let's do a little more. And we'll stay and we'll do a little more, that sort of thing. But you'll see impulsivity in other aspects of their life. How come you quit that job? I just got into my head and I decided to quit. I didn't like it anymore. You know, you bought that $50,000 car, how come? Well, I just decided I wanted the car, it'll be okay and on and on and on. So you'll see more impulsive behavior than just that one area. 
probably not going to see somebody who has impulsivity just in terms of gambling. And sunk costs. What's the fallacy of sunk costs? The fallacy of sunk costs is, wow, I've put so much into this, I really can't afford not to do this now. We just got to keep plugging away, even if it's not working. That applies to lots of things. And Daniel Kahneman, who is the great social psychologist who, who wrote this book, what, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, something like that, says the sunk cost fallacy keeps people for too long in poor jobs, unhappy marriages, and since he was an academic, unpromising research projects. Well, the same thing can happen with gambling. I'm in too deep. I can't afford to stop now. I got to win some more. Well, the house always wins. So it's highly unlikely that you're going to recoup all your losses, but, but people will keep at it because they got to get those losses back. That's the sunk cost fallacy. When in fact, they'd be better just stopping. So you can, to some extent, um, or you know, a psychiatrist or a therapist can to some extent try to, um, try, to, try to make a differential diagnosis based on how broadly based the symptoms are. Are they in more than one area? or whether it's just gambling and whether um, you do have these symptoms that look like an addiction. So that's how you try to tell the difference. George Gordon, Lord Byron, sixth Baron Byron. Um, this is a guy who probably had bipolar disorder. He did a lot of things. Um, you know, he was a notorious lover. He wrote poetry. Um, he raised hell all over the place and so on and so on. His behavior was very broad based. If he was a gambler, I don't know that he was, but he probably would have gambled a lot too, but he had multiple areas where there was dysfunction. So it's not just gambling disorder. Protective effects of dominance. Well, this is interesting. Who gambles and who gambles dysfunctionally? Well, there are some people who have a lot of money who say go to Las Vegas and they drop, you know, $15,000, $20,000. That's not a big deal for them. That may not be compulsive. And they may do it a lot, but they like it. And for them, it's not dysfunctional. And it may not be um, an addiction. Whereas you take a similar person who doesn't have the money to do that and does that, then it's dysfunctional for obvious reasons because they don't have the money. But it also may be more addictive. There is evidence that if you're higher up on a, um, on a dominant scale, you're the alpha male, whatever, your neurotransmitters work a little differently. And in fact, you're less susceptible to becoming addicted to things. And you can, you can see that in primates and other kinds of um, animal models, which is kind of interesting. Decision-making ability and abstinence, why do people start using again? So you get somebody who's been a gambler, and you know, you send them to a self-help group or something. They swear off again, never going to do that again, and so on. And then they relapse. I have a patient now who, one of the few adults I see, because I've been seeing him since he was age 14, who started using every substance known to mankind and used those for a while and stopped and ended up in drug court, you know, and they really helped him and so on. Well, this last week he relapsed again after, I don't know, maybe two years. So why does that happen? Well, the first thing is you can't start blaming people. You can't say, damn it, you know, you relapsed again. That's, that's what you want to do. You want to just, you know, you want to blame them. Well, this is a neurobiological phenomenon. Most people with dependency are going to relapse at some point. 
it's it's the rare person who swears off whatever it is the first time and doesn't ever use again. So why does this happen? Why would people start gambling again? Well, here's an interesting study with former heroin dependent patients. And what this shows you is what they did, they took these people who were abstinent for various amounts of time, 15 days, 30 days, 90 days, a year, two years, and they stressed them. They gave them a stress kind of, kind of thing where what they had to do was they had to present something to a group of people who were all sort of not very friendly and scowling and so on. And what they had to read was very complex and so on. So it was very stressful. And what you find is that people early in abstinence um, tend to feel incredibly stressed by this sort of thing. People later in abstinence, well, these are here are the comparison subjects. Uh, the comparison subjects get stressed, but not a lot. Um, everybody else feels relatively stressed by this kind of kind of thing. Maybe the people with longer term abstinence a little less so, but they still get stressed. And then they then what happens is they give these people a decision making test. So and what they give them is a thing called a card sort. And in the card sort, you turn over a card and you get no money. You turn over a different card and you get five cents. You turn over a third card and you get a buck. Well, what you want to do is turn over the stack where you get the dollar. These people don't do so well on that, particularly if they've had short-term abstinence. If they have longer-term abstinence, they do a whole lot better until you stress them, and then they don't make good decisions. So you take these longer-term abstinent people, shorter-term abstinent people, you stress them all, they all feel the stress, and then they don't do very well on these kind of tests. If you take the same people before they're stressed and you give them a decision-making test, the longer-term abstinence people do much better. So longer-term abstinence is better for you, and it probably reverses some of these brain changes you have. So what does that mean? What that means is you've got somebody who, let's say you're a gambler who's sworn off gambling, and now you know they're, it's two years later and they've been successful, but now they have a stressor. Maybe their marriage goes bad, maybe they're retiring, maybe they lose their job, could be a good stressor. Stress is still stress. Maybe they get promotion and they go back to gambling. The problem is they've been stressed and so their judgment goes to hell at this point. And interestingly, propranolol um, and probably presynaptic alpha-2 agonists may block some of this um, deterioration in judgment, which is, which is, which is kind of interesting. So here's the, here's the same sort of thing. I won't belabor the point. Furthermore, um, these brain, brain changes are long lasting. So after a year of self-administration of cocaine, you know, almost half the primates still had reduced dopamine receptor availability. So the changes don't reverse themselves real quickly. Are there treatments for this sort of thing? Well, you know, we know, we know a lot more about treatments for substances of abuse. We know a lot about treatment for alcohol. Uh, we know a lot about treatment for opiates. We know something about treatment for cocaine and other things. Do we know a lot about treatment for gambling? Not so much, but we have some ideas often by analogy with other disorders. So here's the problem. And here's what you're working against and what you need to reverse when you're gonna treat these people. So here you've got a relatively normal situation. You've got whatever the object is or the substance is, the saliency of the, subject, of the object 
where the desire is, you know, you want it, but it's not overwhelming. You can think about other things. You can think about having a nice meal. You can think about, I got to go to work today. Gee, I'd like to have some chocolate, but I guess I can't have it now. I got to do these other things. You have reasonable self-control. Um, you certainly have memory of the, um, of the thing you want, but it's not an overwhelming memory. And therefore, you're in a no-go situation. You don't do it. You say, normalize it, say, eh, I'm not going to have that chocolate right now. With addiction, or even past addiction, the saliency of the object can become overwhelming, gambling, whatever. It could be opiates. And this accounts for why, you know, you got these opiate users who are sitting around their house. They've got two young kids who are sitting on the couch crying because you haven't fed them. The saliency of the object, in this case, the substance becomes so great that it overwhelms everything else in your life. Your control is not so good. You have these very, very vivid memories because again, that's part of the neurobiological changes. And so what happens is the drive to get it, whatever it is, in this case, gambling is huge and you do it. You jump in the car and go to, you know, Motor City Casino or Mount Pleasant, whatever and leave everything else behind. So that's what you're working against. So that suggests that you got to do, you know, you got to play around with the saliency of the object or you got to decrease the memory or you got to do something about the drive or can you increase control? Well, we can try to do most of those things or at least some of those things. There are no medications that have proven to be effective. Unfortunately, people play around with things like naltrexone because, you know, naltrexone, it blocks opiate use and it's pretty good for alcohol use. So, you know, you and, and it's relatively non-toxic. So you can try naltrexone, maybe it'll help. There are no good studies. People try antidepressants because, you know, often these people are depressed and the depression doesn't help. Um, but there are no real medication treatments as there aren't for some other substances of abuse. Self-help and 12-step groups, sure. You know, for some people, um, these kind of groups are just great. You know, they get in and they find these, these other people who have the same damn problem, say, yeah, you know, and here's what I did to get out of it and so on. 12-step groups are all based on Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's, you know, a very reasonable model too. AA is, um, is kind of brilliant because they do, and AA is really, of course, aimed at alcohol, but, but they do some very interesting things. Like they say to you, um, <clears throat> one drink is too many and a thousand is not enough, which is a great way of putting it. The other thing they say to you is people who want to give you a drink are your enemies. They're not your friends. Well, that's very black and white. You know, you don't have to say, well, maybe they're okay. It's very black and white. They are your enemies. Stay away from them. That makes it easy. And that's working with you cognitively to sort of reframe how you see those people. So they do a lot of very interesting things. And there are you know, a lot of people who do really well with AA or other self-help groups. There are people who, you know, it's not for them. So strategies that improve frontal lobe function. Remember that one of the things you're working against is this, the saliency of the object and your ability to control it. Strategies that improve frontal lobe function are really improving your ability to control that drive right? Because the frontal lobe, a lot of the frontal lobe is inhibitory. So 
these kind of behaviors, dialectical behavioral therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy can be really helpful. You've got to have a motivated patient and they've got to have some insurance or money to be able to pay for therapy. But in cognitive behavioral therapy, particularly, what you're doing is you're saying to people, okay, what's that thought? And you say, whatever it is. And then you try to determine if that thought is dysfunctional or not. And if it is, let's figure out how it's dysfunctional. Let's replace it with another thought. So if you say, let's take it out of, out of addictions. And if you say, um, you know, let's say you will make it really personal for, for medical people. You failed a biochemistry test in medical school. And you say, oh God, you know, I'm just not smart enough to get through medical school. I'm going to, I'm going to have to drop out. Your therapist says to you, well, let's examine that thought. You know, have you passed other tests? Yes, I've, I've really, I've passed every other exam, but you know, I'm really stupid and I'm, I'm going to have to drop out of medical school. Therapist says, well, what's the evidence? You said you passed all your other exams. What does that indicate to you? And so you work with the dysfunction around those thoughts and try to illuminate what the, what the unstated assumptions are Say, well, maybe those aren't real. What's a more reasonable thought? Well, a more reasonable thought is, you know, I failed one exam and maybe I better work on that. And there are ways you can work on that. So that's, that's how cognitive therapy works. Dialectical behavioral therapy, it's kind of an offshoot of cognitive therapy. So we call these things CBT and DBT. And DBT is often done in groups. And while it's, it's more aimed at um, borderline personality disorder, it can also be helpful with addictions because it works you really spend a lot of time talking about relationships and you can have these terribly dysfunctional relationships in in addictions either relationships that have gone bad or relationships with people who are not helping you out they're really prolonging your addiction so those kinds of things try to improve your frontal lobe function so here's the summary here's the problem You've got these people, in this case, let's say gamblers, and they're now abstinent, but they have these defects in judgment that can appear pretty suddenly with stress. And so that's a problem. You have long lasting neurobiological alterations that do remit after some period of time, probably, but it takes a long time. And then if you're stressed, a lot of these problems just pop right up. So one of the things you know is that when you're, if you're a substance user, when you're stressed, you better get back into therapy, kind of an insurance policy, if you're not already in therapy. Abusers, substance users need to be in treatment for long periods of time. This is not a short-term problem. In fact, it's a lifestyle change. They really gotta change their lifestyles. Um, they gotta get rid of people who they go gamble with. Um, they gotta repair other relationships and on and on and on. Maybe they need somebody to help them really regulate money and so on. When stressed, they need to recognize they need to return to treatment. Um, <clears throat> there are other therapies that might be helpful, strategies to take advantage of social hierarchy. Remember I said, the higher up you are in a hierarchy, probably the less likely you are to abuse substances. Not totally unlikely, but less likely. So group therapies, family therapies that repair relationships, repair your status, and you know, if you can advance your social status in some way, that's probably a good thing. So you got maybe medications, you're free to try them, nothing's approved. You got 
12 help, 12 step groups, other self-help groups. Uh, you got strategies to improve the frontal lobe, improve frontal lobe functioning like CBT and DBT. And you got, you know, these social hierarchy things. Can you reestablish your authority in the family? Those kinds of things, all of which can help. So multimodal treatment, um, treatment for this kind of thing is not a single treatment. It's really multiple modalities. Here is Thomas De Quincey. De Quincey wrote the first book in the English language about addictions, Confessions of an English Opium Eater, 1822. Widely read at the time. And finally, Sir Robert Hutchinson, another Brit, <clears throat> British radiologist who said a lot of interesting things from inability to let alone, from too much zeal for the new and contempt for what is old, for putting knowledge before wisdom, science before art and cleverness before common sense, from treating patients as cases, for making the cure of the disease more grievous than the endurance of the same, good Lord deliver us. And when I tell my residents, we just had graduation the other day, I always say to my residents, this is my last crack at you, you know, before you go out there. And, you know, remember one, don't mistake therapeutic response for pathophysiology. In psychiatry, we got a lot of things that work sometimes, antidepressants, lithium, but, you know, the, the drug companies tell us that really what we're treating is a deficit of serotonin. That's why you get serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Well, that's not true. That's simple-minded psychopharmacology. Um, you know, I also tell them, think about people as people, you know, don't think about them as neurobiological preparations and so on. And that's what Hutchinson says. And it's a nice kind of um, piece of wisdom from, from a guy who was around a long time and saw a lot of changes in medicine. Okay. And that is, that is it. Dr. Megan, thank you so much. Quick question. With the change in Michigan law regarding gambling, have we seen an increase in patients that have a gambling dependency um, that maybe we're, we're exploring these, these treatment approaches with? Um, I, think, I think there's, you know, I don't have data on gambling particularly. We know substance use, well, Substance use in some um, age groups has actually gone down. Um, in other age groups, it's gone up. I, I don't know about gambling. I don't, have, I don't have data on that. Are there ongoing studies? Yeah, there are a lot of there are some ongoing studies of gambling and treatments, but you know, nothing that's uh, nothing that's really out there. All right. And then in regards to the uh, change in substance dependence that, that you just stated, um, yeah. is any of that in correlation to the last two years of COVID yeah. or? Well, everybody thinks so. You know, nobody really knows. It's, re it's really interesting. I mean, COVID has thrown a wrench into so many things. You know, you, I, I mean, we, so we see all these kids, I see all these kids who are depressed, particularly adolescents. And I, you just throw up your hands and say, is it, you know, the social isolation of the last two years or, or is it something else? And it's very difficult to know, you know, ask me in four or five years. Okay. I'll make a note. I'll see yeah. you in four or five years. No, I'll see you way before then. All right. Um, I don't see any other questions in the chat, but I, again, I know from the programs that we're asking 
um, for this that that you really kind of hit all of the key points that they were that they were looking for on, on what they can do and and recommend. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oh, sure. Have a great day, everybody. Bye. Bye bye.